Hey folks, um, I just wanted to give you guys kind of a quick update before we start. Um, Mom passed away on October 21st, and I, I'm not going to lie, this is, it's been one of the hardest things to do, just to kind of pull yourself together and, and move on and, 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 and try to do things make progress on things um it took me about three weeks to write this episode and uh going forward we're, we're we're not going anywhere i'll tell you that much it may be at times the episode releases are going to be ecstatic and at the beginning of the year we're going to take a little time off and uh regroup a little bit but I wanted to get you one more episode uh before the end of the year and um um so I cracked a new notebook when I started researching this and one of the things I did was I wrote a quote at the top of the paper on the first page and it said when you die that does not mean you lose to cancer you beat cancer by how you live, why you live, and in the manner in which you live. And that quote is from Stuart Scott at the 2014 ESPY Awards. And uh, it's a quote that sums up how mom lived her life in her final days and in, in, in the final months, too. Um, so with that spirit, <laughs> this is where we move on and we continue so um i hope you enjoy this brief history of the alien abduction phenomenon in 1976 a strange kidnapping case would rock the city of chowchilla california in july of that year 26 students of the dairyland elementary school were returning from a local swimming pool when they were stopped in the middle of the road stood brothers Richard and James Schoenfield and Frederick Woods. The men forced the children and their bus driver, Ed Ray, out of the bus and into two vans where they were taken to a quarry 106 miles away in Livermore. The three men, all wearing stockings over their heads and brandishing firearms, forced the students and driver into an old moving van filled with limited amounts of food and water, and a number of mattresses. The old van was then buried in the quarry. The men were looking for ransom. Detectives later believed that they were inspired by a story called The Day the Children Vanished, published in Alfred Hitchcock's Daring Detectives in 1969. The story, written by Hugh Pentecost, was a whodunit short story about a bus full of missing schoolchildren. The local library just happened to have a copy of the book on hand and saw the similarities. All 27 individuals were confined to the buried van for 16 hours before Ed and the children were able to stack the mattresses and get out from a lid on top of the van. It took some effort, but they were able to shift the 100-pound batteries the Schoenfields and Woods had put on top of the lid. The group managed to shove a rod underneath and emerged, quickly running to a quarry's guard shack for help. 
The three men were later apprehended, and all three received life sentences. Today, the show fields have been paroled, while Frederick Woods was denied parole a number of times. What makes this case unique was the method used to apprehend the suspects. Bus driver Ed Ray was put under hypnosis and was able to recall the license plate of one of the vans that had transported all involved to the quarry. Turned out it was registered to Fred Woods, and authorities were able to apprehend him before making it to the border, headed for Vancouver. The Schoenfields turned themselves into authorities in California, shortly after warrants were issued for their arrest. Hypnosis is controversial in all its applications. It refers to a state of human consciousness where attention is focused and all other peripheral information is suppressed. It's also a state in which people are very prone to suggestion. I'm sure you've seen sitcoms or other TV shows where characters are hypnotized to do certain acts when prompted by a word or sound. The origins of hypnosis date back to the early 1800s. Franz Mesmer, an Austrian physician, believed that all animals, humans included, contained within them something he called animal magnetism. This natural force could be used to heal the human body. He also coined another term, which is synonymously used to describe this force, mesmerism. It's where we get the term mesmerized. Mesmer's theories would be discredited by a French board of inquiry, which consisted of three men, Dr. Joseph Guillotin, who specialized in pain management, chemist Anton de Vosier, and Benjamin Franklin. The three would conduct the first placebo-controlled trial, and would conclude that mesmerism was a simple act of the imagination. It wasn't until 1842 that the term hypnotism would emerge, coined by Scottish surgeon James Byrd. Byrd believed that prolonged fixation on a certain focal point would fatigue the brain, causing a trance. He also suggested that the state could be caused by a fixation on a bright moving object as well. After Braid's death, research into hypnotism would expand. It was used during the Civil War to help soldiers better deal with pain. Many researchers would look into the therapeutic uses of the practice to control addictions. Along with the therapeutic benefits of the practice, stage hypnotists would begin to emerge, convincing crowds that hypnosis was a form of mind control and that it could be achieved rather easily. One of the most controversial uses of hypnotism is when it is utilized to gather testimony in legal proceedings, such as that information gained in the Chowchilla kidnapping case. This sort of information is inadmissible in many courts throughout the United States. Age regression is said to be able to help patients explore earlier parts of their life to help them get in touch with troublesome elements of their personality. It also has the ability when used recklessly, to introduce false memories into the mind. It's this type of therapy alien abductees most often seek out. While it had been an established form of hypnosis for abductees before, it was Whitley Strieber's experiences captured within the pages of his book, Communion, that helped push this tool to the forefront of abductee research. In August of 2018, NPR published a list of the 100 best horror novels and stories. 
The books were chosen by an expert panel of judges in a number of literary genres. Ninety-nine of them were fiction, while one of them made such an impression on one of its panelists that they included it anyway. That book, of course, is Communion. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is the Our Strange Skies Podcast. It's long been believed that alien abduction is a modern phenomenon. The truth of the matter is that it may date back to as early as the 1600s. In the 1980s, researchers David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins were the first to discover that abductions ran through genetic lineage. Generations of people claimed to have had encounters with alien beings going back to the late 1800s. At that time, it wasn't an established phenomenon and neither were UFOs for that matter. It wasn't until the publication of Charles Fort's Book of the Damned in 1919 that anyone realized these strange objects in the sky were a worldwide phenomenon. These early abductions have been dubbed paleo-abductions by researcher Jerome Clark. Researchers like Jacques Vallée and John Keel began to look into the past, into other societies and cultures for beings from other worlds. Valet noted similarities in UFO accounts of the 50s and 60s and the folklore of the Celts. In 2009, researcher Chris Aubeck, along with Valet, published a book entitled Wonders in the Sky. In it, they presented a laundry list of potential sightings dating back to antiquity. While it's not a staunch endorsement of the ancient astronaut theory, the book presents a number of stories that have trace elements of the abduction phenomenon within them. In March of 1638, from the pages of Puritan governor John Withrop's records, comes the story of James Everill and his two companions. Everill was on the Muddy River near Charlton, Massachusetts, when a luminous object appeared in the sky. Everill and his two companions were crossing the river that night, when the bright object appeared above them. For three hours it flew from one side of the men to the other, and each time that it did, took the form of a swine. When the object had finally shot away at a high rate of speed, they were amazed to find that they had been pushed back one mile in the direction they came from, against the current. Some researchers believe that Everill's indication of the passage of time is evidence of missing time, a common feature of the abduction phenomenon. Another aspect Aubeck and Valet have noted is the position of their boat after the object leaves. In abduction accounts, sometimes the abductee is deposited miles away from where they were taken. In James Everill's account, they were pushed back a mile against the current. Until 1957, accounts like this would only contain trace elements of the abduction phenomenon. However, there are a few notable exceptions from other countries. For instance, in Kazan, Russia, in 1752, a man named Yaksha 
encountered a strange being dressed in white clothing, who escorted him to what he called a flying cauldron. Once inside, Yashka was taken to another world and promptly returned to Earth. In September of 1810, a woman from Thailand was awoken by a force she could not describe. The surrounding area was devoid of all noise. From her window, she could see a humanoid figure in her backyard. She claimed the man only had one eye, and seemed to be wearing some sort of metallic suit. The woman was taken to what she called the Palace of Light, before being returned home. In one of the strangest cases of possible paleo-abduction, Jacob Jacobson, a 22-year-old Swedish farmer, was sent across the lake on an errand to deliver food parcels. Upon returning to his dock on September 16, 1759, he saw a strange road that had not been there when he left. The road led him to a luxurious red mansion, and like a cutscene, he found himself sitting on a bench in a large chamber. Seated at the end of a table was a chubby little man wearing a red cap. There were also scores of tiny humanoid figures running back and forth. They had the features of normal human beings, only smaller. An average-sized woman emerged from the busy scene and offered Jacob food and drink. When he declined, the little people asked if he wanted to stay. You know you want to stay with us. Jacob fell to his knees and prayed to return to his family. The man with the red cap then spoke. Throw him out. He has such an ugly mouth. Jacob found himself on the shore again. The road and house disappeared. His parents greeted him warmly and stated that they had been looking for him for four days. To Jacob, it had only felt like it had been just a few hours. What makes this case compelling is the source itself. The only known record of Jacob Jacobson's experience comes from the parish of Ramsburg, Sweden. This experience was important enough to be recorded by the local church. Jacob himself was said to be a trustworthy person, and that he had nothing to gain by telling his story. Regardless, there are certain hallmarks that are hard to miss. The fact that Jacob finds himself sitting on a bench in a room is commonly reported among abductees. The hierarchy of the beings, divided by height as they were, is another common feature of the abduction phenomenon, and of course, the missing time. Before it was dubbed the abduction phenomenon, researchers and experiencers alike wondered if aliens were kidnapping humans. There's the story of Colonel H.G. Shaw, a former journalist who encountered alien beings on the road to Fresno in 1897. Shaw claimed that the alien beings tried to kidnap him and bring him back to Mars as a human specimen. In 1923, Charles Forth would put forth the idea of alien kidnappings in his book, New Lands. One supposes that if extra mundane vessels have sometimes come close to Earth, then sailing away, terrestrial aeronauts may have occasionally left this Earth, or may have been seized and carried away from this Earth. In the early 1950s, some researchers posed the question, are humans being kidnapped by aliens? Donald Kehoe was the first to speculate in his 1953 book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space. Letters from readers of my book and articles gave me another cross-section. Most of those who had seen saucers were soberly concerned, though only a few admitted any fear. 
Some showed the effect of certain scare stories published since 47. One of these stories reported that a nurse and a salesman driving along a desert road had been kidnapped by spacemen. Another described how a private plane had been stopped dead, suspended in midair, apparently under study by a saucer crew. A third fear-provoking story was built on a theory published by Ampro Laboratory Associates, which suggested that spies from Saturn were circulating on Earth, working for our downfall after a saucer invasion. The alien kidnapping scenario would continue in October of that year in the now-defunct Stag magazine, Man to Man. An article would appear that month by Leroy Thorpe entitled, Are the Flying Saucers Kidnapping Humans? Thorpe would make his argument and present the story of the Greer brothers. James and Albert Greer were working on a farm at three in the afternoon when James felt himself being lifted off the ground. Albert attempted to grab his brother, but he kept lifting higher and higher in the air until he disappeared into a blinding white light. The most disturbing information stated that James's body thrashed around like a doll. There are many reasons to believe that the story is completely bunk. There is no date cited, though the incident was said to have occurred in Zanesville, Ohio. Thorpe speculated on the nature of these kidnappings. Are an unlucky few of us, and perhaps not so few at that, being captured with the same ease as we would net butterflies? Perhaps for zoological specimens, perhaps for vivisections? Or some other horrible death designed to reveal to our interplanetary invaders... What makes us tick? There's a great deal of evidence that just this is going on. It is evidence mostly of inexplicable levitations to the sky by invisible and unknown forces, sometimes accompanied by electrical or magnetic phenomena, which our science is powerless to explain. These two sources would inspire World Church founder Orville Lee Jaggers to preach the good word against the saucer people, claiming that he had proof that UFOs were real. Little green men were real, and they were kidnapping human beings. He placed an ad in local newspapers for speaking engagements, speaking out against these damned saucer people. Many would speculate around this time that mysterious disappearances could be caused by flying saucers. In the January and March 1959 editions of the April Bulletin, they dedicated space to the Martin family, who disappeared while going out for a Christmas tree on December 7th of that year. Bodies of some of the family members would later turn up, but no foul play was suspected. Two years prior, in July of 1951, Fred Regan was flying his Piper Club plane over Georgia when he collided with a UFO. The apologetic strange alien beings brought him on board and scanned his body for medical problems. They informed him of a brain tumor that he didn't know he had, cured him, and sent him back down to Earth without a scratch on him. His plane, on the other hand, was not so lucky. When Dan awoke, he found himself in an open field surrounded by the wreckage of his plane. Nearly a year later, Regan passed away from a degenerating brain disease linked to exposure from radiation. Another strange case of potential abduction is that of Private First Class Bernard Jerry Irwin, Irwin was a Nike missile technician, returning from leave on February 28, 1959, headed for Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. 
Outside of Cedar City, Utah, he observed a bright glowing object overhead, eventually disappearing over a nearby ridge. He claimed it was so bright that it lit up a large area as it passed by. Jerry assumed the object to be a downed plane and went off in search of it. He left the note on his steering wheel to catch the attention of a passing motorist. Have gone to investigate possible plane crash. Please call law enforcement officers. A local fish and game inspector discovered the car and the note and came back with a small group of people to search for Jerry. An hour and a half later, Jerry was discovered lying unconscious on the ground. Doctors claimed that Jerry was in perfect health and that he only appeared to be sleeping. Every attempt to wake him failed. When he finally awoke on March 2nd, he asked, Are there any survivors? Where's, where's my jacket? Over the course of the next six months, Jerry would suffer from fainting spells, and once fell into a deep sleep. At one point, he got the urge to drive to the possible crash site, looking for his jacket. In a trance-like state, he found it sitting on a bush with a piece of paper in a pocket. When he burned the paper, he came out of the trance and surrendered himself to local authorities to be taken back to Fort Bliss. Jerry would spend time in and out of the hospital for psychological evaluations until he finally walked off the base, never to be seen again. When we come back from the break, we will explore the modern era of UFO abductions, touching on many of the era's infamous cases. The 1950s was largely dominated by the contactees, a small group of people who claimed to have contact with what they called Space Brothers, alien beings that looked just like us and hailed from places like Venus. Their message was simple. You're destroying the planet. You should totally stop doing that. The Greys would go on to echo this same message to many of its abductees in the 80s and 90s, uh, most notoriously Whitley Strieber, but in a lot of cases you will find that that's what they impart to their abductees, is this idea that you're pretty much roasting the earth, and you might want to cut that shit out. Names like George Adomsky, George Van Tassel, and Truman Bethram dominated the alien contact literature, until two landmark cases came to the forefront. The first is that of Antonio Villas-Boas, a Brazilian farmer who was taken aboard a UFO while he was plowing his family's farm field. In the early morning hours of October 16, 1957, Antonio noticed a bright red star beginning to descend in his direction. When it drew close enough, the light took the form of an egg-shaped object. It landed near his tractor, and a frightened Antonio attempted to flee before being tackled by three masked figures, approximately five feet tall. Antonio was brought on board the craft, stripped of his clothes, and subjected to medical examinations that included the drawing of blood from his chin. After the tests had been conducted, he was led to another room where he was gassed. The gas made him feel ill, causing him to vomit in the corner of the room, after waiting what felt like an eternity, a nude female figure entered the room and had sexual intercourse with Antonio twice. Before she left the room, she pointed to her stomach and then to the sky. Antonio took this as a sign that she was now pregnant. 
He was then led throughout the ship, given a tour, and finally dropped off in the field he had been taken from. According to him, he had spent four and a half hours on the ship. This case was investigated by Dr. Olavo Fontes, a Brazilian member of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. Fontes believed that Antonio's case was true, while Jao Martins, a local reporter, found inconsistencies in his story. The case was so controversial that it didn't appear in print until 1962. It would be another five years before the report was published in the United States, in the book Flying Saucer Occupants by Coral and Jim Lorenzen. The second case is perhaps the most famous alien abduction in history. Definitely one that pop culture has distorted a fair amount. Uh, Betty and Barney Hill were returning from a trip to Niagara Falls. The couple's car was stopped in the middle of Highway 1 in New Hampshire. A strange UFO sat in the middle of the road, blocking the hill's way. The couple was subsequently removed from their car and taken on board the craft, subjected to medical examinations, and returned to their car. The Hills were missing about two hours and had no memory of what had occurred during that time. This sits in stark contrast to the V.S. Boas case where everything he remembered was consciously recalled. And another thing about the V.S. Boas case, in many ways... There are a lot of archaic features to it. I don't want to get too deep into it because it's going to be a Patreon bonus episode uh, that I am, I'm working on and I will get to the patrons soon. But what you note in that case is that he was on his tractor and his tractor was disabled. And when he went back after the abduction had taken place and looked at his tractor... It's as if somebody just unplugged some wires. It's not like it was disabled in the manner that most cars were, you know, post-1957 when cars being disabled by UFOs became a common feature. Same year, though, uh, but it's interesting enough. And also, the people that took him, they did it just by carrying him. And you see that in the Betty and Barney Hill case, but it... It's kind of funny to see because after that, uh, and especially when you get into the 80s um, and even some cases in the 70s, these people are floated, not carried. So those are a couple of interesting things to note before we move on. The Hills suffered from anxiety over the time that they were missing, and Betty started to have these strange nightmares of hideous-looking men doing experiments on her. The Hills turned to Dr. Benjamin Simon in age regression therapy to locate the missing time. The alien beings seemed puzzled by a few things, like Barney's dentures, and they showed Betty a star map of the system that they came from, uh, which was Zeta Reticuli. It's from Betty Hill's account that the greys would then be linked to the Zeta Reticuli star system, uh, despite the fact that her abductors were different from the modern image of the grey that would emerge from the cover of Communion. The abductors of the hills kind of had, I think, pupils to their eyes, but they didn't have those huge almond-shaped eyes that the greys would. 
The Hills account would be leaked to a Boston journalist in 1965, and in 1966, their account would be published in the book The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. The Betty and Barney Hill abduction pioneered the way in which subsequent abduction accounts would be explored. Many researchers would copy Dr. Simon's model, which include blocking the explored memories after every session to reduce cross-contamination during an investigation. What I'm going to play for you now is a brief portion of Barney Hill's hypnotic regression. You may have heard this particular audio on other podcasts like uh, the last podcast on the left or the Mad Scientist podcast, but it remains a moving and terrifying piece of audio. When you listen to this, you get the sense, like, I, I almost cry every time I hear it. So um, here that is. You can remember everything now. It's right over my right. God. What is it? And I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on. Experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Oh! You got my gun! All right. All right. That's all. Start. You got my gun! Go this way, Steve. You forget now. Oh, Lord. You forget it now. It's also from Betty and Barney Hill that the term abduction enters the American zeitgeist. They no longer refer to them as kidnappings. Kidnapping was a speculative thing. Now we know that Alien beings are pulling people out of their cars and taking them on board their craft. Major cases of alien abduction were sparse during the 1960s, and many of them wouldn't be researched until the 1970s or 1980s. One notable exception comes from a Nebraska patrolman named Herbert Shermer in 1967. Shermer was out on routine patrol on December 3rd, 1967, when he saw what he first believed to be an overturned truck. Upon closer examination, what appeared to be a truck was in actuality an oval-shaped craft hovering several feet off the ground. Officer Shermer continued to stare at the craft for a number of minutes before it shot off into the sky. He would file a report with the superior officer, and aside from a brief interview given to the Ashland Gazette, he would put the incident out of his mind. Nearly two months later, Leo Sprinkle would come across Shermer's account and believe that there was more to it. Sprinkle is a psychologist whose interest in the UFO phenomenon came from experience. He had a pair of sightings in 1949 and again in 1956, which led him to join groups like the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, 
or NICAP, or if you're Jason Moitoso, NICAP, and APRO. He became the first academic to devote time to abduction research. Sprinkle got in contact with Shermer and led him through age regression hypnosis. Shermer revealed that he exited his vehicle and approached the UFO, but not of his own free will. His body felt like it was being operated by a remote control. Once on board, there were several human-looking entities that appeared to have reptilian traits. They all bore a winged, snake-like insignia on their uniforms and greeted him in a friendly fashion. They toured him around the ship and shared their propulsion technology with him before he was returned to his patrol car. Here's a short audio clip of Shermer describing his experiences. So I told them that everything was all secure. I pulled onto the highway and putting the mic down, I seen some flashing lights in front of me. First appeared to me to be a truck, I thought, as I got closer and put the high beams of the lights in the patrol car on this, this object started raising, these lights started raising up in the air to about 40 feet. I, I, I think I was something like 50 yards from this. These lights were flashing and they got, as they got bigger, as I got close to it, it seemed like they were red flashing lights coming out of a porthole, which sort of circled the, the uh, craft. It had uh, like a catwalk going around the center of it. It was shaped like a football, very metallic, like a very shiny bumper, if you polished a bumper on a car. It had sort of a reddish, orangish glow coming under, from beneath it. And then there was this white flash that came on to me in the patrol car. It felt as if we were being pulled. And then it was being pulled. You know, we were being pulled up the side of this bank to the left of the road and up toward this field, the car and I. I, I felt nothing. I, I, uh, at first I felt kind of stunned and shocked, and then I felt sort of tingly. And as the car and I moved up the bank to the top of this fill, this object landed and some legs came out and it sat down. I was just sitting there really motionless. I couldn't move. I may have even had my mouth open. I don't remember, you know, being probably scared. This hatch came open. And this light came out of the hatch. And this form came down. The Condon Committee would dismiss this case, stating, Based on the evaluation of psychological tests, the talks with the policeman, and the lack of any evidence, it could not be concluded that the experience had been physically real. By the 1970s, researchers were becoming more aware of the phenomenon and started to devote a little more time to it. The public still hadn't received widespread exposure to the phenomenon, but by the mid-70s, two cases would gain a national following. In October of 1973, a pair of fishermen in Pascagoula, Mississippi, would receive national attention for their abduction encounter. Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker were fishing off a pier when an egg-shaped object glowing a bright blue floated near them. A hatch opened up, and a small group of beings six feet tall with lobster-like claws, elephant feet, and carrot-like appendages on their heads 
floated toward the two men. Parker fainted at first sight of the odd-looking creatures, but Hickson was conscious through the entire experience. The two men were examined by an eye-like device in the craft. When they were returned, the two men reported their encounter to the local authorities. The case was investigated by the great UFO dad that we all love, J. Allen Hynek, along with engineering professor James Harder. So I'm in the same boat, you see. Because of his expertise in the field of UFOs, Dr. Hynek is called to the scene of every major UFO sighting. He was summoned to Pascagoula, Mississippi last October, hours after two shipyard workers, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker, stumbled into a sheriff's office and said they had been taken aboard a flying saucer. I went down to Pascagoula uh, completely negative, but I talked, I worked with those men for quite a while. I listened to tapes that had been taken when they didn't know they were being taped. I... Uh, uh, saw what, how Charlie behaved under hypnosis and uh, finally the, the lie detector test. All of those things convinced me that he was not making it up. The, they, had had, they had had an experience, period. But you can't determine whether they actually saw a flying saucer or were taken aboard one. No, I, I couldn't at all. There's, there's no, no way that I know of in which um, we could determine that. It's like if you tell me that you dreamt of purple peach trees last night. What can I do about it? Well, you have to go on the assumption that he is indeed telling the truth. Well, yeah. Uh, you have to then judge by his past reputation, what, what his, how he's regarded in the community. Would he have any reason to do it? Uh, all that sort of thing. So, um, I just don't know about that. Of course, it fits a pattern. You see, that's not an isolated case. We have a catalog now of well over 800 such cases. On October 23rd of this year, Charles Hickson, one of the men involved in that incident at Pascagoula, invited WWDC newsman Rudolph Brewington to his home in Gautier, Mississippi. That's just north of Pascagoula. And Hickson recalled his experience. Uh, last year on October the 16th, in, in the fall of the year, Calvin Parker and myself, we... Uh, at that time, we were employed by F.B. Walker & Son Shipyard in Pascoola. Um, and sometime during the day on October 11th, we decided to go fishing after work, something that I, I do, you know, quite often when I'm not working is fishing. So after we got off work, uh, uh, probably 4.30, I think, we were working nine hours a day. We, uh, I came home and uh, to get my fishing gear. And we wouldn't go out in a boat because uh, we were going to the banks of the river and fish from the banks for speckled trout and redfish. So we tried, we uh, got our bait and we got to the river and tried several spots and the fish didn't seem to be biting. So there was one more spot that we were going to try. That it, uh, In the past I'd caught fish there a lot of times at the old Shaw Peter shipyard. It's an old bandit shipyard. So we went... Um, about, uh, back up the river to, to the old shipyard and we were fishing from a pier off of the a wharf you might say on the uh, banks of the river there and um, it had become dark by that time we do quite a bit of uh, 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 fishing after dark you know down here in that time of the year so I don't know what attracted my attention where I had reached around to get more bait which was sitting behind us or uh, I heard some kind of zipping-like sound, like uh, air of 
a steam or something escaping from a pipe. And as I turned around, I saw some uh, two blue flashing lights, or either pulsating lights, I'm not sure. And it seemed like um, it, it was some type of craft, and it seemed like it was almost down to the ground then. In fact, it was. It seemed to be about a, a, a couple of feet, you know, above the ground. It just hovered there. So Calvin had turned by this time, and, and uh, he was looking at it too. And really, I didn't know what to do. I just, it just, I was just spellbound there for a few minutes. Just, and um, and then almost immediately, some type of opening appeared in the the end that was toward us, with what I assumed to be the front end, and. The, the light that had come outside which is it was real real bright light and three things appeared in the doorway uh, of the craft and they seemed to just glide out out of the craft they never touched the ground they seemed to just glide across it must have been 25 or 30 feet from us or or maybe a little further than that and they Charles Hickson would appear on the Dick Cavett show alongside J. Allen Hynek the pair were browbeaten by Carl Sagan on national television over the reality of alien life visiting Earth. One of the most infamous UFO abductions was that of 22-year-old American logger Travis Walton. Just after 6 in the evening on November 5, 1975, Walton and his co-workers were leaving their job site in Turkey Springs, Arizona. On the way through the Sitgreaves National Forest, they spotted a bright light coming from the other side of a hill. When they got closer, they realized it was a UFO hovering in a field. A brash Travis Walton exited the vehicle to get a closer look at the UFO. The whole crew looked on as a blue beam of light emitted from the craft and threw Travis back 20 feet. The men panicked and sped away, leaving an unconscious Travis Walton on the ground. Cooler heads would eventually prevail when Mike Rogers, the crew foreman, turned the truck back around. When they arrived at the spot where Travis had fallen, his body was missing, and the UFO itself had disappeared. The men reported the incident to police, but needless to say, Sheriff Martin Gillespie didn't believe them. They treated the case as if it were a murder investigation, but search teams failed to locate the body. The event made international news within a couple days of Travis's disappearance. Travis himself would return five days later and recount what he could remember. He was taken on board the UFO and woke up on a table surrounded by three strange-looking humanoids with large brown eyes. He also encountered tall, beautiful, blonde-haired beings that looked distinctly human. If you want another term for them, they would be called the Nordics. A male and female led him to a chair and put a mask over his face before he blacked out. Three years later, he would publish his story as the Walton Experience, later dubbed Fire in the Sky, to coincide with the release of the 1993 film based on his book. Weeks earlier, in 1975, a TV movie called The UFO Incident premiered on NBC James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons starred as Barney and Betty Hill, recounting the details of their abduction on the small screen. Dada? Not much. Barney, I want to ask you something. I can't, not with that thing over your eyes. <laughs> it was your idea. 
This probably isn't the time, anyway. But I really wanted to ask you... Listen, Betty, I was just listening to the news. Bonnie, I said I wanted to ask you something. This is important, Betty, really important. If they actually do start shooting missiles... Who? Nobody's going to start shooting missiles, Bonnie. If they do, and we're not together, if I'm at work and can't get here... Now listen to me. What I want you to do is make your way to your mother's house. Now I'll manage to get there. Is that clear? Yes. Yes, sure. Good. Bonnie, what I wanted to ask you before was how come we can talk about this UFO business together and wonder what it was together? But with Janet, with Jack, it was a plain period. With you, I can look like a fool. But with my friends, I can't afford to look like a fool. I got to hate that washcloth. More and more, he'd just lie there with it over his face. It's actually a really good movie. Um... They don't go all in on the alien stuff. They show how this event affected their marriage and how they dealt with it. And uh, it's available on YouTube. I'll throw a link in the show notes so you guys can check it out. But it's a really great film. New researchers would emerge in the latter half of the 70s. Raymond Fowler would investigate the abduction of a woman named Betty Andreessen whose experiences began in 1967. Betty and her family were home one evening when a bright light would catch their attention. Outside, they witnessed a group of alien beings approach their home and walk directly through the walls. The beings put the rest of the family in some sort of suspended animation and took Betty to their ship, where they conducted medical tests and showed her various symbols and shared their knowledge. Betty's case is unique because of the religious symbols that were shown to her. And Betty herself was a deeply religious person. And it had that type of effect on her, where she did not look at this as uh, distinctly alien life or acclimating the two. They It was kind of a symbiotic thing where God and these aliens, yeah, they might be working together or something along those lines. Fowler would go on to write five books about her case. Jim and Coral Lorenzen, uh, the founding members of APRA, would investigate numerous abduction accounts in the 1970s and publish them in a book, Abducted, Confrontations with Beings from Outer Space, Astonishing Accounts of Humans Captured by UFOs. The strangeness of UFO reports were also very prevalent in the 1970s. We've covered the stories of Lee Parrish, the 19-year-old who was abducted by three machine-type beings, as well as the abduction of three women near Stanford, Kentucky, by a group of shadowy alien figures. Carl Higdon, a 41-year-old oil well driller, was out hunting in October 1974 when he was taken on board a craft by a bow-legged humanoid that was missing its left hand. Higdon would be taken to another planet where he observed the space needle-like building and other alien structures. 
He was examined by a device that resembled the shape of a shield. And he eventually re-emerged onto Earth from a square-shaped portal. In 1980, Leo Sprinkle would regress a woman named Judy Doherty. She claimed to have been abducted by a UFO in 1973, while her car was pulled over and her family remained inside. She was abducted at the same time a young calf was also being abducted. While on board, she watched the young calf get dismembered and discarded from the ship. Following in the footsteps of Jacques Vallée, folklorist Thomas E. Bullard would examine the lore of multiple cultures for signs of abduction, and Kenneth Ring, noted near-death experience, or NDE researcher, linked the phenomenon to abductions as well. In the ensuing decades, uh, Raymond Fowler's research would actually head in that direction, especially when you crack the cover of Watchers 2, which is one of the books that details Betty Andreessen's abduction experiences. By the end of the 1970s, the profile of the abduction phenomenon was this. Abductions were singular events. The appearance of the abductors varied greatly, and it was adults that found themselves the victims of the phenomenon. The abductors generally perform medical tests with a great interest in the human reproductive system. Many hardline skeptics saw the phenomenon as purely psychological, but one man would emerge to expose the features of the phenomenon in full. Bud Hopkins, a New York artist, became interested in the UFO phenomenon after having a personal experience of his own. In 1981, he published Missing Time. In the book, he found seven abductees that shared common traits, such as unusual scars, screen memories, and multiple abduction events over the course of their life. He would inspire a new group of researchers to the abduction phenomenon, including David Jacobs, who would publish a number of books on the subject in the 90s and 2000s. Hopkins would explore the phenomenon further in his second book, Intruders. He began to cement abductions as a purely physical occurrence, and exposed a breeding program where female abductees would be implanted with a fetus only to have it removed during a subsequent abduction event and raised by the beings on the ship. Sometimes these abductees would be later reintroduced to the baby, and uh, even before that they would be asked at times to nurse the baby or uh, show the baby affection, because the aliens apparently didn't know how to do that. Hopkins started to see generational patterns to the abductees as well, noting that abduction events would trace back to an abductee's grandparents, like we mentioned before. Another book published the same year would go on to transform the abduction into a pop culture sensation. With the publication of Whitley Strieber's Communion in 1987, readers were treated to a terrifying yet enlightening tale of one man engaging with the phenomenon. Even the aliens seemed to possess human traits at times. The female being Whitley interacted with most seemed annoyed during one of his abductions, as if she'd done this job, like, for a million years. And they also had a sense of humor, too. At one point, they tell Whitley that he's the chosen one, kind of in a joking, offhand way, and he basically calls BS on him. It's kind of funny in the book. In 
communion gave a whole new group of people something to relate to. And those people would send Whitley Strieber letters by the thousands. And eventually he would publish some of them in a book called The Communion Letters. The success of the book would lead to a number of sequels in the ensuing decades. TV programs began featuring abductees and their stories. Unsolved Mysteries exposed millions to the story of four men who were abducted during a camping trip on the Allagash River in Maine in 1976. Talk shows like Oprah and Donahue featured abductees telling their stories in the late 80s and early 90s. Why don't they ever come down and say anything here's, to you? Here's, here's yeah. the situation. How come they didn't talk to you, Ed? Here, here's the situation. Why, why, is it, why, is it, why does it have to be that it has to be something from outer space? I don't know that it's something from outer space. Uh, is it something that our, own is, that our own military is doing? That's what the people of Gulf You're Breeze, just saying this is what you this, saw. This is what I saw. I've had some very bizarre experiences. I don't believe, personally, it's, it's a military craft. But I would love for Howard Bloom to shake this thing up enough to have the Congress have a hearing and let the military, let the military tell us once and for all, what are they doing? Are they flying something around? What's going on? So you've never, nobody's, none of them out there have tried to abduct you or? Well, I've had some very strange experiences. Um, I was actually struck by a blue beam. Uh, this makes... Hey, believe, I know it sounds preposterous. It sounds preposterous when I say the words. But in good faith, I tell you that I ran out in the street, saw this thing going over, and was struck by a blue beam. Now, does the military have some kind of ability to do that? I don't think so. But if they do, I want to know about it. It is our right as Americans to know what we are funding our government to do or not to do. Okay, Ed, you say what? Uh, I say that Ed claims in his book that he gets ESP messages that they show him photographs of nude women, not pictures of nude women, but actual nude women. He claims to have been abducted, and in fact, the mayor of his own town, Ed Gray III, has denounced this case as a hoax. I agree that for I've many been, I've never said that I've been abducted. I said- You have never I said have that? Reread your book. I have never, quote, read my lips. I have never said that I've been abducted. The image of the alien depicted on the cover of Communion is a persistent cultural icon today, though it's most often depicted in a green color. If you look on the cover, the old school cover, not the 2008 cover of Communion, uh, the color of this alien is kind of like old leathery in a way, like old leathery and faded to a certain extent. And in the book, he talks about how she definitely looks like she's old, and she tells him that she is old, so you have that going on. But it's because of communion that alien beings themselves would become homogenized. They took on the form of what we know today as greys. Short, fragile-looking figures with chalky skin, large heads, and unforgettable black, almond-shaped eyes. The success did come with a price. Whitley Strieber became a laughingstock to many. Alien probe jokes emerged to ridicule abductees, and those persist even to this day. And I've made this note before, but we'll make it again. Anal probes? Not that common in the abduction literature. I've run across it twice. One, Whitley Strieber's account. 
Second comes from an account in the communion letters. So, not that common. Really, it's a dumb joke. Many consider Strieber a fraud, despite the fact that he was already a successful writer with two movie adaptations under his belt based on his work. Those thinking that Whitley was doing this for fame, no. You know, he already had a decent amount of fame. He had published about five books up to that point, so that excuse kind of falls flat, so we can discard that one. And he would also go on in the, I believe it was the 90s, or it might have been the early 2000s, the man would declare bankruptcy. So clearly he didn't make the Boku bucks you think he did off of communion. Yeah, he made a little bit of money, but that money doesn't last because those sequels don't sell. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. You want it to be a singular story and that's it. And I think what we fail to attribute to Whitley Strieber in communion is the fact that, one, he's good at making you feel what he feels. He's very good at describing how these experiences affected him. But at the same time, he also looked at these beings as not being totally 100% negative. It was kind of a yin-yang thing to it, where there's good, the good kind of outweighs the bad a little bit more, but these traumatic experiences lead to good transformations. And in the wake of communion, Strieber inspired a number of abductees to come forward and tell their stories. Now, we've covered the abduction of Ed Walters on this podcast. And while his story is not very believable, it is one of the most prominent to emerge in the wake of communion. The story of Don and Steve Hess, who were abducted in the Mojave Desert in an alien invasion type scenario, uh, was published in 1994 uh, in a book called Searchers, which was later dubbed the Mojave Incident. And if you want to learn more about that story, I highly recommend you check out episode 23 of the Not Alone podcast. A uh, link will be available in the show notes, uh, but that story is crazy, and Sam does a fantastic job with it, and Jason curses my name on that episode, so it's a good one. You know it's a good one. In the mid-90s, Whitley Strieber would interview a man named Jesse Long on NBC, and this, I, I don't know the exact program, I didn't really have time to research it, but it was... Uh, I assume it was a primetime program, but interviewing this man, you get the sense that this has been tortured for him his entire life. And I'm going to put a link to a, a short YouTube clip of it in the show notes, and dear God, is it terrifying. In 1991, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs would conduct a roper poll and they found that 2% of the American population believed that they had been abducted by UFOs. A year earlier, one of the field's most prominent researchers would begin his work with abductees. Bud Hopkins was introduced to the founder of Harvard's psychology department, John Mack, in the late 80s. Hopkins asked if he wanted to attend a support group for abductees that he regularly held in his home. From there, Mack would go on to conduct a decade-long study of the phenomenon, working with about 200 abductees. 
He published two books on the subject, Abduction and Passport to the Cosmos. Throughout the books, Mack postulated that the phenomenon was not, in fact, physical, but related to human consciousness. This sits in stark contrast to the researchers like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, who would really push the physical aspect of the phenomenon. David Jacobs would promulgate the idea that there was an alien agenda, and he knew it. And he got that by conducting hypnosis sessions. And if you read his books like uh, Secret Life and The Threat, that is what he presents you. Secret Life, he... It's almost verbatim, these regression sessions just transcribed onto the page. And in the thread, he starts to put together this idea that there is an alien agenda and that they're uh, working on basically invading the planet or something like that. It's kind of a negative thing, but if you look at the phenomenon today, not to say that abductions don't happen, but... It's clearly sensational because nobody believes that the alien agenda is really still happening today. I mean, come on. You kidding me? In 1996, Bud Hopkins published his third book, Witnessed. Also known as the famed Brooklyn Bridge Abduction, Hopkins detailed the abduction of Linda Napolitano, referred to as Linda Cortiel in the book. She claimed to have been abducted from her apartment in front of over 20 witnesses sitting in traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge, including a high-ranking UN member. None of the witnesses were identified by name, and even Hopkins believed that Napolitano doctored some of the evidence that she brandished. And if you go on YouTube, there is a series of videos from Bun Hopkins' ex-wife that kind of paints this case in a bad light. So... It's one of the most controversial cases from the 90s, aside from Ed Walters and his crazy BS and uh, model building scenario. We're going to finish that story, I promise, next year with Not Alone. It's going to happen. The profile of the average experiencer continued to expand during the 90s. The abductee was a diverse group of people, now spanning all races, ages, genders, vocations, and religions. The problem comes forth when most of the stories that you're hearing from are from white people. So, I don't want to call the racist card here, but like there are others out there that uh, their stories need to be told, so maybe we should start telling them. I don't know. Seems like a good idea. Uh, the promulgation of screen memories featuring animals arose and became significant part of post-abduction memories uh, in the 90s as well. And it also became kind of a pop cultural thing. Like, owls, man, they're everywhere. They're freaking creepy, too. By the year 2000, abduction research would slip from the mainstream it was already headed that way during the late 90s, but researchers would rediscover an interest in the physical aspects of the phenomenon. Dr. Roger Lear, uh, a podiatrist, began to practice the removal of alien implants. Uh, if you've seen Patient 17, you know who Dr. Roger Lear is, but pretty much if you've seen any offbeat UFO kind of program from the late 90s into the 2000s, you know who Roger Lear is. Rest in peace. 
Bill Chalker tried to look for DNA and forensic evidence of aliens in the abduction phenomenon. He worked with a man named Peter Curie, who claimed to have had sexual relations with female alien beings, so much so that they left a blonde pubic hair on his bed. Not going, I'm not, I'm not going any further than that. Michael Mencken designed a piece of headgear that he claimed can stop an alien abduction. He calls this device a thought screen helmet, and he teaches you how to construct one on his website, stopabductions.com. In a similar vein, Ann Druffel, a longtime abduction researcher, published a book about how to prevent an abduction from happening. It's entitled, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. I dig titles that straight to the point. Today, the field is populated with researchers that split the field between physical and non-physical theorists. Mike Cleland, an experiencer, has explored the nature of owls and their roles in screen memories and the nature of synchronicity in the UFO phenomenon. Kathleen Martin, the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, is MUFON's director of experiencer research. In 2011, she co-authored a research paper with experiencer and researcher Denise Stoner, which detailed commonalities among alien abductees. Their findings indicate that a majority of abductees have an abnormal craving for salt, suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome, migraines, and claim to have experienced paranormal activity in their home after an abduction experience. Jeffrey Kripal, a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Rice University, and Whitley Strieber have looked at the phenomenon through a religious lens and have gone on to suggest that what we believe to be the greys, the alien species most commonly reported during abductions, is in fact a part of our own consciousness. A small number of experiencers have gained some notoriety in the past decade. David Huggins' story reached the masses in 2017 with the release of the documentary Love and Saucers. If you remember, I had Brad Abrahams, the director, on uh, to talk about that in early last year, or earlier this year. Get my day straight. Get my year straight. I don't know what's going on. But Huggins is a pretty down-to-earth guy who paints his experiences, and claims to have had sex with an alien being he named Crescent. Controversy emerged after alleged abductee Stan Romanek was convicted of possessing child pornography in 2017. His story was documented in the film Extraordinary, and presented Romanek as an obsessive individual who documented nearly every experience he had, and was thwarted by the government often. Many are skeptical of his story, claiming that most of his evidence was faked. And if you look at his evidence, it does look faked. This is also the only time I will be bringing up Stan Romanek on this podcast. Don't ever ask for an episode about it. It's not happening. In 2017, Jeremy Corbell released the documentary Patient 17, which chronicled the removal of an alien implant by Dr. Roger Lear, who died in the process of filming. This film is similarly seen as controversial among many in the UFO community. That's kind of the tone with uh, Corbell's work. You either love it or you hate it. It's kind of that divisive, so say what you will about it. 
perhaps the most profound abduction account of the last decade comes from a woman named Sherry Wilde. Her book, The Forgotten Promise, published in 2013, detailed her lifelong experiences with the Greys and a being she nicknamed Da. From a young age, they taught her many life lessons through repeated abduction encounters. In many ways, The Forgotten Promise reads like the direct descendant of Communion. I don't say that lightly. It does feel like Communion in many ways. Even down to the fact that the aliens gave the book the title. It's a really good book. I highly recommend everybody check it out, especially if you're a fan of Communion. But uh, Wilde relates that, according to the alien beings, there are three important things to remember. One, we are one with the Creator. Two, we are multidimensional beings existing on more than one level simultaneously. And three, that we should monitor our thoughts. This episode was written and produced by me, Rob Christofferson. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Another way you can support the show is by sharing it on social media or telling a friend. We're available on all major social media platforms, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And our email is at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. A special thanks to all those that lent their vocal talents to this episode. Thanks to Nate Hale from the Conspirators podcast, Scott Thrower of the Fairy Tales for Unwanted Children podcast, the great Desdemona of the Now Sirenside podcast, and upcoming Calling Darkness podcast. You don't want to miss out on that one, folks. It's going to be a good one. Uh, Patrick Rahal of the Throwdown Thursday podcast, also known as Patsy the Angry Nerd. Angelo Fiorentino, my buddy over at the Double Density Podcast, and Justin Drown of the Obscura True Crime Podcast. Links to all of these podcasts will be available in the show notes, and I really encourage all of you to go check those shows out. I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for the support that you have given me the last two months. Uh, for everyone that reached out to me on social media, sent me an email sent a care package, and just had a kind word. Thank you so much. It's really because of you that I keep going. It's because of all of you that you you push me, and, and, and I appreciate it to keep doing this. I love you all. Our wonderful new theme song was written by the amazing Big Cats, also known as Spencer Worth Davis. You can catch him and his co-host, Ryan Copperood, over on the What If podcast every week. And our logo, as we all know, was designed by the wonderful Tessa Brown, also known as Sam Fredrickson's sister. Finally, don't forget to don your headgear to prevent those pesky aliens from abducting you. And don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. In Grey We Trust.
Duvid Media.